Hello, and thank you for downloading. This is the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and I'm speaking today with Jim Urbina. For someone not in the American Society of Golf Course Architects, it's remarkable how Jim Urbina seems to know everyone in the design business. Like most architects, he travels and works relentlessly, but he also has a zealot-like knack for always being where the action is. His connections appear to form a spherical spiderweb. You could even play six degrees of Jim Urbina, although you'd rarely need that many moves to reach him from any location in the design world. Urbina began his career in the late 1980s, working on projects for Pete and Perry Dye in his home state of Colorado. He'd never played golf before getting the job, so in many ways he entered the profession with an architectural mind that was unsullied, neutral. Before long, Dye sent him to the UK to see some of the great Lynx courses, and that experience formed the basis of his beliefs and developed in him an abiding passion for natural contour in the ground game. That same passion made him an ideal match for Tom Doak, who hired Urbina as an associate in the early days of Renaissance golf design. The two of them, along with Bruce Hepner from episode 58, scraped along for several years before gaining traction in the late 90s with courses like Lost Dunes in Michigan and Apache Stronghold in Arizona, a project Urbina took the lead on. From there, the hit parade began, with Urbina helping Doak create masterpieces like Pacific Dunes, Sabanak on Long Island, Common Ground in Denver, and others. Following the completion of the fourth course at Bandon Dunes, Old MacDonald, where owner Mike Kaiser personally requested Urbina be assigned co-design credit, Urbina began his own company with a specialty in consulting with and restoring historic Golden Age designs. His renovation work has taken him to places like Charles Allison's Bobolink near Chicago and Seth Rayner's Great Yeamans Hall in Charleston. Along the way, he's restored historic courses by McKinsey, Tillinghast, and Flynn to their former glory. All throughout this long journey, Urbina has continued to search for opportunities to express his considerable creativity and unique view of golf. In the course of this conversation, in fact, he dropped some delicious teases about a new project, an original build he's been in discussions with for some client on some majestic golf site somewhere out there. He won't tell yet. The best thing to do now is to step aside and let Jim do the talking. If you've not heard him speak before, and even if you have, you'll find his mind to be fascinating. He's an earnest, opinionated visionary, a mad hatter, and an architectural evangelist. And after listening to this, even you will feel only a few degrees separated. Now buckle up for Jim Urbina. I know you travel a lot. That's part of the job. That's part of the lifestyle as being an architect. What, what do you do when you're back at home? You're in Denver now. What do you do in your spare time? It's interesting because the amount of time that I spend on the road versus being at home, I cherish the time at home. Although uh, I'm not sure that sometimes my wife doesn't enjoy me being gone. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. So, <laughs> Sorry. So, you know, I, I've always told people that uh, the in, most enjoyable part of the golf architectural business is being on site. Getting to and from the site is the most difficult. I can't imagine taking a boat, as Mackenzie and Rainer may have done, going to Hawaii, Rainer going to Hawaii, Mackenzie going to South America and Australia, or Donald Ross riding all those trains get to your destination to perform your creative artwork. Yeah, those guys must have had a lot of free time on their hands while in transit. I wonder if that's why they were able to 
write more prolifically than we've seen, you know, in the last 50 years or so? Well, I know for sure that they had more time to contemplate what they were doing. I go back and forth on that because sometimes the coolest things that I've ever designed and built were just, I'm not saying off the cuff, but they came to me quickly. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have time to mull it over. But I, I, I'm assuming, and I'm sure of it, that as Ross, McKenzie, McDonald, Rayner, you name it, Colt, Allison, as they traveled, they must have thought about their designs and how they could make them better or what they could do to enhance what they've already laid out. That's an interesting thing to think about, especially when you get into the middle of the century and contemporary times when architects like yourself, you're, you're traveling just as much, but you're getting there faster. So I wonder if that had a, a negative effect somehow in, in the, the products when people were able to get around the world a little quicker. You know, we got around, we do get around the world quicker and we get instant feedback quicker, as you know. So is it a benefit or is it a, a negative to the final outcome of the, of the design? I go back and forth. I, I, I don't know if it's good or bad or indifferent. When you say you get instant feedback, Give me an example of when that's happened to you and, and what that feedback was like. How did that affect what you did next? Well, I've, I've, I've gotten calls from clubs where I consult at, and I've gotten calls and emails from people who have stopped in to see the work that I've been doing. And it's, I'm not even done yet. And it's, it's like, I really like what you're doing there or... Did you consider this idea? Uh, we're not even done yet. And the, the idea that uh, feedback is coming instantly, it's sometimes I have to tell people, uh, be patient. Uh, the whole art, the, 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 the entire photo, if we want to talk about artwork, the entire photo is not done yet. Uh, I got a little shading to do. I got some... Uh, I got some eyebrows to put on. Uh, you're just seeing the eyes. Uh, just be patient. So that's the feedback that I'm talking about. And, and in many cases, you need to say, actually wait for five or six years till all this grows in and settles and, and is really mature. Well, and I've, I've told uh, many owners and several committee members that the superintendent will take it to the next level. Right. In regards to the presentation of the golf course as it matures and it gets better. But, you know, people want that instant photograph and people want that instant gratification. And I totally understand that. But, you know, as we deal with the time warp of today's society, instant, instant, instant. I think some of the best golf courses that were allowed to mature and, as you say, settle in, I think we're missing that. But don't you think that even back in Donna Ross's day here or Tillinghast, if every time they showed up to a course during construction, they were getting an earful from some member or somebody who had a strong opinion about what they were doing and seeing? I think that maybe McDonald probably experienced that because he worked with some very influential people in the New York area. And you're right. Donald Ross probably got that as he traveled around the Northeast and, and then headed to the South. 
uh, by via train to Pinehurst and several of his other designs. They may have got that from a few notable people, but today, everybody that has a phone, an email address, a, 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 an opinion, you know, they're not afraid to offer it up. <laughs> no doubt. I want to keep talking about that effect on architecture, but let me start in, as a way to kind of get into that in, in more uh, from a different avenue. Let me just ask you this. I'm really curious to, to hear your response to this. Do you think, is architecture right now, golf course architecture at this moment and maybe for the last 10 or 20 years, is it in a good place? In other words, when when history is written about this era and somebody 50 or 75 years from now is looking back, the way we look back at previous eras and have opinions and can uh, see the historical trends and how they ended up playing up playing out, will they have a positive uh, viewpoint of, of what's been done now? Or is there some sort of um, undesirable or, or unexpected underbelly, some undercurrent that we're not aware of that may reveal itself later? Much like we look back at the, the courses from the mid-century and we're, we're, we can be very critical of them now, while in contemporary times, they were considered masterpieces and cutting edge. You know, I've discussed that with many people. And I believe deep down in my heart, you know, I came from the Pete Dye era. I trained under Pete Dye and his son Perry Dye, and we were very comfortable mo moving a million cubic yards of dirt. So I totally understand that 70s, 80s era. But I do believe with the advent of golf courses like the Sand Hills of Nebraska, where Coor and Crenshaw, Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw, just found the golf course, thankfully because of Dick Young's cap's willingness to find the right piece of property, I do believe that we've gone back or gone forward in a new light that we all get to experience this this very natural looking architecture. And it harkens back to what McKenzie said years ago. And if you don't mind me, I'd like to quote that. Absolutely. The chief objective of every golf architect or greenskeeper worth his salt is to imitate the beauties of nature so closely as to make his work more indistinguishable from nature itself. I mean, I think that's where we're at right now. That we are trying to emulate our surroundings with beautiful pieces of property, like the Sand Hills, like the Bandon Dunes Resort. Right. That my heart deep down believes we're in the right place. But you can easily say that in 10 or 20 years, architecture may change completely and it will become more futuristic. And the art of what we do today may seem to be not so relevant, if that makes sense. An interesting parallel to that is at the highest end of what we've seen created in the last 20 years, really since Sand Hills, but going through many courses that, that you helped build as well, Bally Neal and the Bandon Dune properties and, and those types of courses. Those 
are spectacular because they are so natural, just as you described, which they have a parallel to the British Lynx courses, the UK and Irish courses that are timeless and never go out of style. So have have do those courses not achieve sort of a, a, their own standard where they're what, no matter what else is happening elsewhere in architecture in cities and inland properties where courses are constructed those naturalistic courses are sort of they defy criticism in a way because they do resemble old heart heart and soul golf from the old country i i have to agree with you when i first made my trip courtesy of the Dye family to Scotland, I visited Presswick. That was my first golf course. And I thought, wow, this is how golf courses are supposed to look? And remember, I didn't grow up in the game of golf, Derek. I didn't want to be a golf course architect. I had no interest in it. I didn't even play the game of golf. But that Mr. Dye, he was a smart bird, He said, I'm going to take this kid and I'm going to send him to Scotland and I'm going to show him where it all started and maybe he'll get something from that. And sure enough, almost 40 years later, my heart still lives for the Lynx lands of Scotland and Ireland. Mm -hmm. And they are timeless. And we are in the era of creating these works of art and beauty that are just happen to be very interactive. I tell people all the time that I create three-dimensional art that is interactive. You can look at my artwork and then go play it, interact with it. Uh, That's pretty cool. That's a lot of fun. But it really harkens back to when I first visited Presswick and I said to myself, oh, This is how it's supposed to be. No fountains, no waterfalls, no artificial features, just golf. And possibly a train line running next to this Lynx Golf. And so that's the era that we are in. My heart says it's the right era. They are timeless. And I'll never forget Mike Kaiser. He's been pretty influential in my life. He said one day when we were out of building Pacific Dunes, he said, you know, you're building something that will last forever. Buildings will change. Homes will be knocked down. This is not him saying it. This is my reaction. Homes will be knocked down and redone. Cities will be revamped. Inner urban areas will be rethought of and remade. But a golf course built right and perceived to be well done is timeless. And I think that's what we created at Pacific Dunes, timeless. Much like golf courses were, I got first sent to learn and and experience what golf was about. I hope that answers your question. Because naturalism and those looks that that were created at Bandon Dunes and and Ballyneal and Sand Hills are not tied to any specific design style or era as great as Pete Dye is. And we'll talk, we can talk about him a little bit, but you know, he had a style. He was an artist. He projected a vision into the ground. That was his own. He be, he began something that didn't exist before, but these courses that we're talking about are like the Lynx courses. They, they, they're not stylistic. They're, 
they're just expressions of, of golf in the land. And, and that's isn't that why they're timeless? I think they're timeless because we don't force the man or, or we don't force the hand of man on these properties. One of the things I got the most out of visiting a golf course was at St. Andrews. And I would recommend that anybody who wanted to study golf architecture go and walk and play St. Andrews. One of the first times I visited it, I just went on a Sunday and walked around like all the other locals do. I don't know if you know this, but St. Andrews is closed on Sunday. So we, you and I, could go walk around and just talk and look at architecture, experience it. And then I went back and played it, and I realized that the St. Andrews Golf Course was so random in its presentation. And I think the lands that people are looking at now the Kaisers, the Young's Caps, the, the, the new developers that are looking for these pieces of property that are special, a hoopy match club that Gil's working on or has finished in, in, in the South. They're looking for these pieces of land that are special. And I, as a golf designer, golf builder, as Pete Dye would say, Pete said, we're not architects, we're builders. Hmm. He would say, take what the land gives you. Although Pete never really did that, he kind of imposed what his ideas of art were on a land form. When I go look at a piece of property, which I've been doing recently uh, with a potential new client, when I look at the land forms, I think, how could I use this? I don't want to mess this up. And on my website, I talk about taking the land and using it to its fullest, making sure I don't erase something that's natural that I wish I could have used down the road. And when you do that, when you take the land that is given you and you create the 18 holes or 9 holes or 12 holes or whatever you're going to design, and you take that nature I think that's what makes them timeless. You can't do timeless on a flat piece of ground where there's a ton of requirements that are made upon you, drainage, irrigation, uh, landscaping, surrounding land uh, forms that are unnatural. It's hard to make those timeless. Pete Dye is always interesting to talk about because so many of the projects that he worked on and he was famous for, he didn't really have that opportunity to do what you're saying. There there might have been some natural, interesting feature in the land, but maybe it was just a swamp or, you know, or, you know, so a lot of the projects that, that he was involved with in his career, he really did have to engineer it. You know, he, he, I don't know that he ever really got anything like you're describing. Um, you know, think about whistling straights was just a, a flat bluff and old airstrip. Uh, so it is interesting to see like how he didn't get that opportunity and yet his architecture is still so profound. Agreed. Agreed. Totally. The swamp of sawgrass. Yeah. I mean, I, I forever cherish the architecture that Pete created there. I call it the X factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people always say, what's the X factor? Well, that's what Pete did at Sawgrass over and over and over. And 
I have not seen the teeth of the dog. My goal is to see it before I die. I know that that was one of the most natural sights he ever had. But I have been to the golf club in New Albany, Ohio, and I thought that was a pretty natural piece of land that he used, although he did use some bulkheading railroad ties as part of his design. It still followed the lay of the land, and I thought so enjoyable to walk and play. Now, as you have described, TPC Sawgrass, uh, Kohler, Wisconsin, uh, PGA West, Although, again, let me rephrase myself and say La Quinta Mountain Course was a very beautiful piece of property. Mm -hmm. PGA West and La Quinta Mountain were one of the first golf courses I ever saw. Pete told me, he told me to get on a plane and he wanted me to go look at those golf courses because he was trying to build something like that at Arizona State University, some style of architecture. So I went and looked at those properties. PGA West, totally created. La Quinta Mountain Course, as part of the landform, he used the canyons to their fullest. So you're right. He didn't always get those pieces of land. What would he have done at Sand Hills, Derek? Who would ever know? You've heard the story that Dick Young's cap, because he'd worked with Pete at, in, uh, at his their course in, in uh, what is it? In, in Lincoln. Yeah, Fire, Lincoln. Firethorn, Lincoln. I think. Firethorn. And uh, he, I was supposed to go work there. Were you really? <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna. I was going there after the TPC at Plum Creek, but then I went and did something kind of goofy. I went and taught for a living. <laughs> it's okay, it's <laughs> noble. <laughs> Made you realize how much you missed construction, I guess. Well, I I realized that I I I had to try teaching. I was a high school drafting teacher. I had to try it to make sure I wasn't missing something. My mom spent a lot of money on my college education. I didn't want to let her down, so. I was going to go to Firethorn, and I was going to be a part of Dick Youngscap's dream at Lincoln. But you're right. I do know the story. I believe you were going to say that Dick offered the site in Sandhills to Pete Dye first. Is that correct? That's what I heard. Ron Witten, that's what Ron Witten said. And Ron said, you know, Pete's wonderful, but he's not the guy for this particular job in this site. And... I say to you, what if, what if Pete had turned it on at Sandhills? What could have been? You know, we'll never know, will we? We won't know. And it's, I'll, I'll turn this question back to you. What if someone else other than Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw had gotten that job on that piece of land? Let's say it was one of the high name profile designers of that era, like a Nicholas or a Hills or... Um, the Palmer design group or something, you know, somebody like that who approached golf design differently, would that course still have, have turned out somewhat like it did ex as exceptional as it is almost because the land is so good. Could they have adapted their building philosophy to those sand hills and those dunes and that climate? Well, all I can do is look back at history. And when I look back at history, at that time when Sand Hills was being considered, the 90s, Nicholas was building these unbelievable pieces of golf course design in Florida, in Arizona. One of the most favorite ones that I like of Nicholas's fame is Las Campanas in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So that's what Nicholas was doing at that time. And 
if people were calling Jack and saying, I really like what you did at Desert Mountain, and I really like what you did at Las Campanas, and I really like what you did, you just fill in the blank with the name. Why do you think that Jack would deviate from what people liked? And so if he went to the Sand Hills, I am wondering if he could have put Muirfield, one of the best golf courses he ever did, Muirfield in, in, in Ohio, could he have put Muirfield out of his mind and said, you know, it's time for me to do something different? I don't know if he could have done that. Because people loved Muirfield. People loved Desert Mountain. Why would you want to stray from that? It's an interesting thing to think about because now it wouldn't be a problem. We have evidence around the world of naturalistic, new naturalistic projects like Sandhills and Ballyneal and Tara Edie and things like that. So any, any architect who gets a piece of land like that now is going to go the naturalist, minimal style of, of, of uh, land impact mode. But at that time, nobody had ever seen a Sandhills before. It was completely an original idea and an original concept, even though it's so simple. So it's very interesting to think if how a designer would approach a brand a brand new type of property like that that had, with no template. Bill Core nailed it, of course, and of course Jack Nicholas went back, uh, you know, a few years later and built the first dismal river course. And that doesn't look like Mirfield Village. A lot, of, a lot of people had you know problems with it and criticized it. I thought it was was very well done. I mean, he definitely tried to you know he didn't try to stamp out a Mirfield Village in those sand hills. It, it might not have been done to the successful level that Sand Hills was, but it's a it was a really 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 good golf course. So he 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 did well, kind of learn something in those intervening years. I can tell you that when we were working with Mister Nicholas at Sabonic a golf course in Southampton, New York, Sabonic Golf Club, co-designed with Renaissance Golf Design and Jack Nicklaus. I can tell you that Jack said to me on several occasions, Jim, you ought to go see what we're doing in the Sand Hills of Nebraska. Because me and Jack and I used to kid each other a lot about architecture. Right. Uh, Ron Witten was a witness to that, so he can, he can vouch for me. But we kidded each other a lot. And you guys had a wrestling match, didn't you? We did. We, we, on the 10th hole, he, he grabbed me and tried to throw me to the ground. <laughs> yeah, he was a good old guy. I, I learned a lot from Jack. But to go back to the Sandhills, Dismal River is the golf course he did. At the time he was doing Sabonic, we were doing things a little different at Sabonic. Some of the things that he wasn't used to, and he liked it. But... He also told me in the same breath, you should go see Muirfield Village. He asked if I had ever seen it. And I said, no. He said, you should go see it. You'd really like what I've done there. And so I'm thinking to myself, he tells me to go look at Dismal River, but yet in the same breath, he tells me to go to Muirfield. I'm wondering which one does he really, really like? Mm -hmm. Which one does he really is he really comfortable with? I've seen Dismal River. It's it's a it's an unbelievable piece of land. We actually looked at that before uh, Jack got his hands on it uh, a couple years before that. Uh, I have photos before uh, they even started of the, of the land. Oh, really? Yeah, I, 
uh, we we went and interviewed with the uh, owners, but um, they went they chose Jack, and that's okay. Yeah, they had a they but, had a different model than than Sandhills. That's correct. They wanted it to be a little that's more glitzy, correct. I think. So, what does that tell you about how important the ownership is to an architectural gem? Right. That's where I want to go, because no matter what Jack did or Fazio did. Oh, by the way, let's go back to Fazio. Fazio, have you ever seen Shadow Creek? I've not been there, no. Okay, so I've seen what I think are the two best Fazio courses he's ever done. He may disagree with me. I've seen seen Wade. Wade Hampton is off the charts beautiful. I'm like, this is Fazio at its finest. And then I go to Shadow Creek and I think this is a marvel of art and, 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 and artistic flavor and creativity. Could Fazio have done what he did at Shadow Creek and Wade Hampton in the Sand Hills of, of Nebraska? I don't know. But the owner at Shadow Creek, Mr. Steve Wynn, wanted that style of golf course. The owners of Wade Hampton wanted that style of golf course. They found that piece of property, and Tom Fazio delivered. Dick Young's cap wanted a Sand Hills, and he found the people that he thought were the right fit. And sure enough, they pulled it off with rousing success. So is it the architect or is it the owner and the, the land that the owner provides the architect that is the impetus for great golf architecture? Yeah, I guess. And the takeaway from all that is that architects, whether by intention or j- this is just the way it works, much maybe like uh, film actors, get typecast in a way. And fortunately, if, if for most of your career, you've been typecast as the guy who could take a really amazing natural sight and get a, get a 10 out of it. And other people are the are typecast as, as we can deliver a high-end luxury product that's going to check all the, the uh, agronomic and visual stimulation buttons. And it's, it's probably pretty hard to break out of those lanes. That's exactly what I believe Mackenzie did and Hunter did when Samuel Morris showed him the land at Cypress Point. Mm. Or Marion Holland said, here's your piece of land, have at it. Well, are they going to fail when you give them pieces of property like that? I doubt it. But if you're giving a flat piece of ground in the desert of Nevada and you're challenged to create one of the most beautiful golf courses in the world, I think Fazio nailed it 10 times over. So, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the land and the developer and the owner, or is it the architect? You tell me. Of course, didn't Morse first hire Seth Rayner to do Cypress Point? That would... Yeah, I wish I could find that. Yeah, I mean, think <laughs> I about I think about that how that was, what direction that was going to go in. Well, let's go down that road. Now nah, we don't want to go down that road. <laughs> People can use their own imagination. It turned out it turned out Correct. pretty good the way it ended up. Well, think about this. It turned out really, really good because Mackenzie, I told you, I gave you the quote. 
every architect worth his grain of salt will emulate nature. What happens if Rainer does that golf course and right off the bat he nails in a Redan and then he does a Maiden and then he does a Alps and then he does a Punch Bowl? Do you see where I'm going? Was the Arctic, the artistic and creative flair of Rainer with his geometric and very bold greens, would that have been the right fit for Cypress if that was the true, that Rainer had routed it and was ready to go? Just think the difference between a Rainer design at Cypress Point and a McKenzie and Hunter design at Cypress Point. We could debate that one forever. I, I mean, I know the answer to this, but let's just throw this out there just as, as a, a game. Let's say someone hires you to, with your love of, of Rainer and, and classical architecture. I mean, you've, you've, touched, you've touched a number of Rainer courses, and that type of architecture I know is very inspirational to you, and you have the greatest admiration it for is. it. But if you got a, if you got an Oceanside I, site, I mean, I can't see any, any possible way that you would ever try to do something that Rainer might have built. You know, you could do an old McDonald kind of version with, and use those ideal holes as starting points, perhaps, or strategic launching pads. But I don't think it would look like Yemen's Hall on top of a cliff. Oh, boy. I, 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 that's a great question. I have thought many times over that the Lido was one of the best golf courses. I've never seen it. None of us have seen it. But I thought the Lido and writers of that era, Bernard Darwin and others, had said the Lido was the finest golf course ever built, right with the National and Pine Valley. And it was on the ocean. And it had those features, the Alps, the Redan, the Eden, the Knoll, the Biritz. It had all of those features. Couldn't that style of architecture, couldn't that have worked on an ocean site? I interviewed for the job at uh, Monterey Peninsula Country Club, the Rainer Golf Course. And I had suggested to the, to the group that we should restore Rainer, even though Rainer had never actually built mm -hmm. it. It was finished by Mackenzie and Hunter. I thought that that would work on an ocean site. That that beauty of that boldness of those greens would work on the ocean. But you asked me, could I do that today if you gave me a Cypress Point piece of land or a Pebble Beach piece of land? I think that you would want the nature to overrule the architecture in some cases. I think understated at Cypress Point, the greens, the bunkering, although the bunkering is beautiful at Cypress Point, I think the understated look of McKenzie, understated is, is in quotes, right. that's yeah. an interpretation, would be, is, was a better fit for Cypress Point than the Redan on the 15th hole at Cypress Point. What do you think? It it would depend on your finish work, wouldn't it? I mean, because you can look at, like, look at the original Redan. You know, that's on a coastal site. That works in that environment. 
the Redans at Shinnecock and, and National Golf Links work. And th- those are, you know, on Bayside sites. Um, so if you didn't, if you, I think if you gave it that really extreme, like hard edged look that you find in a lot of Rainer's uh, restored work, I, that might clash a little bit. But I think there's a way that you could modify that and, and make it not so, so it doesn't pop Stop. out of the earth so vertically, you know, kind of broaden it out and stretch it out a little bit and rough up the, yeah. the edges a little bit. Um, I think, yeah. That. I and I imagine that. that's we'll never we may not know, but I, I imagine that's what the Lido probably looked like. It probably had more of a weathered look. It could work. I just <laughs> you'd have to modify it, right? Is that isn't that what you're saying? I think I think it could work, and and I there are people have been in contact with me about redoing the Lido, and I am currently looking at we're trying to find sites that would work for the Lido. Wow. Cool. And that's great. if I could with the help of very talented shapers helping me recreate the Lido, I think you're right. I think on an ocean site like it was in Long Beach, New York, that it it had its own character. But was Rainer the right fit for Cypress Point? We can debate that until midnight because what you see today, Mackenzie and Hunter's inspired artwork at Cypress Point is perfectly matched for that site. And so I go back to that. Is it the architect who creates the work of art, the 10, as you would call it? Or is that the developer and the land that he gives the architect lay the groundwork for that 10 or what we call great architecture? It seems if nothing else, we're in an era now where there's a there's a really strong symbiosis between developers and what their vision is and selecting architects who can deliver on that vision. Uh, there's, a, there's a greater, since there's more diversity in landscapes now, as you said, owners are willing to go out and find these, these rare pieces of property. You're working with apparently one now. They're, they're going to make probably nine times out of 10 the correct decision on who to hire as an architect because they're as well and as better educated and more knowledgeable than maybe de- uh, developers were for a 50 year period going into the last century. Well, you got to remember the 50 year period just after world war two or 40 year period, whatever you want to call it, they were built. People were ready to spend money. People were done with the war. They were done with the depression and People wanted to take up this game. It was a game for all. And we couldn't, we, architects, builders, whatever you want to call them, couldn't build them fast enough. And they built them in every major city. And some of them were municipalities and some of them were developments. But you couldn't build them fast enough. But today, we're in that slow period. I think it's a good period, which... We can go back and talk about, is this the right time? I think it is the right time. I think it is the right era. Owners are more selective. Not all of them, some of them. They are looking for that special piece of land. And this type of era as compared to, man, they they were building golf courses. You know, the National Golf Foundation said you should build over 200 golf courses a year. 
Do you realize how creative you are building 200 golf courses a year? <laughs> Not very creative. And so the era which we are in now, selective pieces of land, selective owners looking for that right combination of land, owner, architect is more select. And I think golf is benefiting because of that. And I can say without hesitation that this style today is good for golf. You know, in that period of time, I've, I've spent the last year, year and a half really looking into this, the post-war period in architecture and, and just getting my hands on as much documentation and, and reading as much as I can. And I've come to a lot of conclusions. And one of them uh, was originally, I, I'm, I'm still there in this thought process, but one of the biggest changes was coming out of the war, you have access to so many more new technologies and, and technologies are, are being taken from the war wartime effort and being commercialized across different platforms in society and used in different ways. So golf architects and, and really superintendents have new machinery used, new fertilizers, new chemicals. The, a, a great possibility exists on what you can do to a golf course to make it quote unquote modern and improved over the quote unquote old fashioned golf courses that were, that existed in, in the uh, pre-depression era. So much of the creativity coming out of World War II into the 50s and the 60s especially is a, is a creativity of, of construction. They're building golf courses to be more efficient, more economical, easier to maintain. And that's where focus was. They were finding creative ways to make a sleeker, more modern golf course. They lost track. They lost the, 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 the trail of strategic golf, or at least st strategic golf as they define it became more limited and more narrowly defined than it than it existed previously. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that, if you agree with me, why do you think that kind of strategy espoused by by Simpson and McKenzie and, and Tillinghast, why, why did that go away? Why couldn't you, why couldn't those architects do both? Infuse golf courses with a multiplicity of ways to play and really cer a cerebral approach to golf, but and also build really technically sound golf courses as well. I agree with you and disagree with you. So I agree with you that it became slicker and faster and streamlined. Those are good words. Did, did you use slicker? <laughs> I don't know. I'll say I did. We'll have to re rewind the tape. Actually, I'll give that to you. I, I don't think I said that. I think that's yours. That's good. All right. That's my interpretation. So they cast aside the golden age designs because it was a new era. Post-war, correct? Yes. It was a new era. It was time to start the new look of architecture in America. Well, who started that? Well, I could say, I could say with almost 100% certainty that Robert Trent Jones Sr. started that new wave of architecture. And he can build golf courses in New York, in Russia, in China, in South America, he could build them everywhere. And he did that by the streamlining of the architecture. And so his two sons carried on that tradition of Robert Drent Jones Sr. And, and the look and the playability of those golf courses. They found their niche. And Dick Wilson and Joe Lee found their niche. 
and the American Society of Golf Course Architects formed. And they said, you know, we're going to do this for the American people and we're going to build newer and better and more uh, uh, engineered and, and, and all of those things that went after post-World War II. But you know what I think they forgot? I think they forgot how to make golf courses fun to play. Mm-hmm. And my website, uh, when I started my company 10 years ago, the first thing I put on the banner on my website, which I think was very important, was make golf course fun again. Spread the word. Right? We Spread the word. We want to spread the word. We want to make golf courses fun again. And in that post-war era, I don't think they were about making golf courses fun and entertaining and strategic and all of those other terms that the Golden Age designers used. They were trying to make golf courses for the masses and, as you said, streamlining. And all of those architects were successful for that time. For that time period, they were successful. Were they very creative? I don't know about that. Were they very strategic? Well, if you hit it down the center, they were strategic. But you and I both know that width adds fun. Width adds strategy. And in that era, post-World War II, they weren't thinking about the width of a golf course. They were thinking about a bunker left, a bunker right, two bunkers around every green, a couple bumps here and there, frame the hole. You know the word framing the hole? Mm. I, I, you hate it, I just, don't you? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm going to frame the hole. What does that mean? Like frame a house? Like homes that are built, track homes that are built all looking the same? Is that what you mean by framing? Because... That word in the context of building the new post-World War II golf course, I think, took all the beauty and strategic flair out of golf courses. And the most important thing for me, the fun factor. How fun was it? How much fun did you have? Would you go back and play it again? So I think that's what was lost, the fun factor, the strategic factor, I agree with you. But man, did we build a lot of golf courses post-World War II. You know, Were they good golf courses? I can't think. I can't think. This is my opinion. Of a post-World War II golf course that just knocks my socks off built from between the 50s and 70s. Can you? I, I'll have to get back to you on that one. That if you, when you say knocks my socks off, that's that's a tough qualifier. It's a tough qualifier. But now, in the last, you started off the conversation this this uh, this today, this event this morning today by asking me that new era of golf architecture is it good for golf? I can name ten golf courses that knock my socks off and built in the last. 10, 15 years, and I can't name one from the 50s to the 80s that knocks my socks off. And don't get me wrong, the Lacostas of the world were were exactly what people wanted at that time. 
the 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 burning trees, the the, the uh, all of those Florida golf courses built in the '60s, '70s. Dick Wilson, Joe Lee, the golf courses in California '60s and '70s. People were in love with those. But for me, nothing knocked my socks off like the Golden Age designs and the designs of the this era from 1995, I'll just say it, 1996, 97, when Sand Hills was built to now. There has been some unbelievable golf courses, both strategic and entertaining that makes you want to just go back again and again and again. And there's a bunch of them being built today. They're timeless. Here's the only caveat that I would say to that. When you talk about golf courses being fun, aren't we applying a, a futuristic standard retrospectively back onto those golf courses? Cause you'd have to say, well, those people who played golf and golf grew at an unparalleled rate during the, during this 50s, 60s and 70s, more people came to the game forever. People played golf all over the country. You'd have to say, well, they weren't really having fun. I mean, if, it, if what you say is true, you'd have to say they, they didn't have fun. I think they did have fun. I think they enjoyed those golf courses. But I think what's happened is, I'll just finish real quick. I think what happened was we, now we look at where golf can be, recapturing those those classical elements and applying it now in a neoclassical way on natural sites. And we know, understand the possibilities to be so much greater than the people of the 50s, 60s, and 70s did. But I think they were ha- having fun. And I, I equate it, to, it's, I just thought of this when I was thinking of this. Me and my kids have been going back and, and watching old James Bond movies. I remember those movies when I saw them 20, 30 years ago as being fantastic. The, the Roger Moore movies like The Spy Who Loved Me and The Man with the Golden Gun. And I wa- we yeah. watch them now and I'm like, this is the corniest shit I've ever seen. Like this, the special <laughs> effects are horrible. The acting's bad. But at the time it was great. And we, and we say that now because we have real special effects in movies. We have so many more possibilities of what we can express on screen, a higher quality of acting and writing perhaps and directing. So it's it's tough to retroactively apply a modern standard on something that existed be- before. But I, I, I do agree with you though, having said all that. And, and you are right. More people join the game because it was more accessible to the masses after World War II than ever before. And that was good for golf because people could, and more nine hole golf courses were built back Mm -hmm. then. And every town in the Midwest had a nine hole golf course and they had to be fun because at the end of a hard working day in the Midwest, you name your little town that had a nine hole golf course, they went out and they had fun. So you are absolutely correct. Just to illustrate what we've been talking about, I, I found an old article written in 1963 by an architect named David Kent, who I'd never heard of, but apparently he worked in California. And he writes an, uh, a feature for Golfdom talking about coordinating the skills of expert in many fields. That's the title of it. It's a, probably an 800-word essay that he writes. And I'm going to just highlight some of the words that he uses. Uh, exact engineering principles, business management, Utilize construction equipment efficiently. Precision planning, specification, scientific irrigation system, detailed advanced planning, specs, detail. It goes on and on. And then he talks about how in his firm, in order to coordinate all this, they have 
they have in-house, they have not only him, the architect, they have civil and hydraulic engineers. They have a, they've hired a landscape architect, an agronomist, a chemist, a construction specialist, and a turf management specialist. And this is all in under one, one umbrella company. And, and not once in this whole article does he ever talk about strategy or what the golf holes look like or, or how to create, as you would say, fun. And I think I... I wanted to point that out because I think this article really summarizes the, the mindset of the not just architects, but of the American people of that period in time. That's they respected this. This was, as you've been saying, this is this is cutting edge, streamlined, slick design. Um, and as we know now, it, at, it came at a cost of creativity, I think. Well, you know, there are and, and the interpretation of what is creative we could go back and, and debate that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s again. Playing nine holes out in in Ogallala, Nebraska, uh, and you're hitting a shot, and you go into the hole, and you that's the best round of golf you ever played. You would say, I was pretty creative today. <laughs> <laughs> but in the scheme of golden age designs and the errors of today, you know, it's what made a golf course great. And to answer your to to answer your question about the article, I'll never forget uh, building Arizona State University. We were walking around the golf course uh, one afternoon, and and the engineer had pulled out a set of plans out of the back of the truck. And I remember Pete talking about uh, one or two of the holes that we were building. And the engineer had pulled out the plans and Pete said, son, we won't be needing those today. <laughs> that's amazing. And that spoke, that spoke volumes of what in that time and era, in that moment when Pete was going to get creative, that although the, the plans, the drainage and the irrigation and the, and the location of the lake all had to be figured out, I don't ever want to not say those are important. At that point in time, Pete didn't want to look at those plans. He said, we won't be needing those today. And so you have to have that fine balance and mix of the need, what we need, boundaries, irrigation, drainage, what we need, and then what we don't need is a detailed greens drawing made by somebody in an office that said you should build the green like this today. Well, I'm standing next to Pete and he's going to go and get down on his knees and he's going to shape in the dirt what he thinks this green should look like. That's what he did for me at Arizona State University. He said, Jim, I want, and I, I, uh, I'll never forget this night. It was close to the end of the night, bunch of people standing around we're walking, Pete drops down into the dirt, and he starts shaping in the dirt what he wanted the green to look like. And I've told this story many a time. He was creating a piece of artwork in the dirt, like molded clay. And he said, Jim, do you, you, did you get it? Did you see it? I said, yeah, I got it, Pete. And as fast as he created you're about, you're about to say, don't touch it. <laughs> Leave it there. No, I, I got to get a, if I'd have had my camera, as we all do, technology, I'd have taken a photo of it. But as quickly as he built it and he looked at me, stared up at me and said, did you get it? And I got it, Pete. He kicked it away with his foot. 
And it was like, well, wait a minute. Do it again. But you, <laughs> he wouldn't be able to do it again because that was the moment. That was the moment that he was creative and that's what he saw. And that's what today I believe some of the best golf courses being created were in the moment. They weren't planned 30, 60, 90, 120 days ago. They would create it in the moment. I just got back from, from the sheep ranch and I saw what Bill and Ben created and his wonderful shapings, shaping staff did at the sheep ranch. They created a golf course in the moment. And some of the green sites are unbelievable. And once again, the ocean and the landform is unbelievable. Mike Kaiser, Phil Friedman, give Bill and Ben the chance to work on a special site. But they created that green site, that style of architecture in the moment. And I think that's where some of the best golf courses are built and not so much as was drawn up in a plan set in an office and talking about hydraulics and mechanics and fluidity and all of those other things in the moment. You brought up Sheep Ranch. I have to ask, yeah, a little bit of your soul exists on that property, doesn't it? It's funny. It sound, you sound like jo uh, a friend of mine, John Ashworth. He always talks about linking himself to the soul of the game. You're right. There's a little bit of soul there. Uh, with the help of uh, a lot of talented guys, Don Plasic being one of them, who works for Renaissance Golf Design, I thought that we created something pretty cool up there. Um, but, but, Derek, only a few people got to see it. And if you're going to spread the word about golf, shouldn't the masses be able to enjoy all of these styles of architecture. And that's what Phil Friedman and Mike Kaiser did. They completed the foundation of what the sheep ranch stood for. They made, uh, they hired Bill Corr and Ben Cranshaw to design 18 holes. And when I walked out there and I saw for the first time how Bill and Ben had routed it, Bill routed it, I thought he figured it out. And something that we didn't do before that, but still, the landforms were there. Bill just took it and made 18 holes out of it. And when you go play it and you go see the greens and the landforms that he chose to keep, that Bill and Ben chose to keep, I just think, you know, I gave it a go. Renaissance Golf gave it a go. But Bill Coor and ben Crenshaw, ben Crenshaw took it to the next level. And now the masses will see it, and then I'll let them decide. But that was architecture in the moment. Right, right. And and the program changed. It wasn't that, you know, there's anything wrong with what, what you and, and Tom and the boys did there. It's just that owners decided to go a different direction. I don't have a... I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm sh I have every confidence that the Sheep Ranch will be a, a, a top 25 course in the world or, or, you know, based on all of his potential. But you just said people should be able to see it and people should be able to be exposed to different styles of architecture. And I can't help but think, wouldn't it be better for the game if that remained a, 
11 or 12 hole golf course, non-irrigated and and exposed people to that style of golf. We don't get that. We don't see that. And going into the future and the way we golf might be forced to exist at some distant, you know, maybe not so distant point in our collective future, smaller golf courses that use less water that rely on the ground game that you can bump your ball around. That seems like an important thing to introduce people to. Can't disagree. So Derek, let's go find an owner anywhere in the U S and let's ask him to build a 12 or 13 hole golf course. And I'll be happy to help you build that. Right. And let's see how the masses enjoy. That's right. Just leave it up to me to find the owner who's willing to support that. And then you'll come on to build it. I got it. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll be happy to help you. <laughs> and you're right. There are people who enjoyed it. The sheep ranch for what it stood for, for years. I enjoyed it. Phil Friedman is on record for telling people he enjoyed it. But it was... At that moment in time, a new direction. And I think when people walk and play the sheep ranch, they will enjoy it as much as previous people enjoyed what was there before. And let's go build a 12-hole golf course. Happy to do let's that. Do it. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the thinking of nine-hole golf courses like they used to be all across the country. And get as many people as we could get signed up so people get to experience that next level of architecture. So to bridge what we were talking, we were talking about building in the moment, and then we'll talk about the future of American golf or something like that. And here's how we'll bridge it. You're a unique case. You said you didn't come from a golf background. You were exposed to golf through Pete Dye. He showed you what he was doing. He put you on a tractor. You learned on the site, on the job. Then he sent you to Prestwick. He encouraged you to go to Pinehurst and see Donald Ross courses and an old architecture. That was your exposure to it. So you really never got to experience all the, the crappy golf that most of us have to put up with in our lives that forms somehow st- stays in your brain and in your memory and in your mind. Think of, And think about the, the generation of architects who, who were there uh, before you. These were the guys who uh, came out of offices, land planners, technicians, engineers. And I, I can't help but think, what kind of golf course did they grow up seeing? Now, they might have grown up on a Donald Ross course or a Tillinghast course or a Styles and Van Cleek course, but was that course restored? Was it really showing its true architectural colors or had it been renovated, had it been overgrown? There was a generation of architects, it's very likely, who by our standards, our current standards, judging today, which I say we shouldn't do, but I'm doing now, they were never exposed to quality golf, most of them. What we're seeing now, which I think is encouraging, and this ties into our initial conversation where we are, there is a generation of people involved in the golf business, many of them under 40 years old, who have unprecedented access and ability to get to see great new courses and also great historic architecture that's been restored and properly presented. And they have access to more information and more data resources than previous generations did. That's got to come through 
in their designs going forward in a positive way. And those are the guys that when we talk about building a 12-hole golf course somewhere or taking a taking some old city property that's run down and reinventing it into something that might be a, a, a more contemporary, usable version of golf, so maybe it's nine holes, maybe it's 12 or something else, these are the guys that are going to be prepared to do it and build in some really great, fascinating architectural features. And that gives me hope for the future. It gives me hope, too. But I hope that the new era of architecture and guys who build, women who build the next generation of golf courses aren't caught up in the photogenic look of the golf course. Mm -hmm. How does it look? How does it look on the phone? How does it look on the desktop? How does it look in a golf course magazine article? Because some of the best greens that I've ever seen and built were very understated. And... I hope that the next generation isn't caught up in the, I'll I'll say it again, the photogenic look of the golf course. Does it have substance? Is it interactive? Or is it just pretty to look at? And I think a lot of the post-World War II architects like Robert Trent Jones Sr., who who went around the world with his designs, I think they were building things that they thought were right for that time. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and, and um, you know, I listened to your podcast with Jeff Brower. I believe that Jeff Brower has, has done the best work that he could do based on his beliefs, and there's nothing wrong with that. And now the era of the, the 90s, Sand Hills and on, with these golf courses, they're built on unbelievable pieces of land and the creativity is way up there. It's, it's good. It's, it's, it will last forever. I just hope that the next generation doesn't get caught up in the photogenic and how good it looks on the phone and the desktop and that it does have substance and that, that a subtle green, a subtle green, not a rainer green that sticks up in the air that's very dramatic, but a subtle green that's on the ground has as much impact, even though it's not photogenic, can really stir the soul, as John Ashworth would say, stir the soul of the people participating in the golf and the golf architecture. Right. It could be ch- a challenge. I, would, I don't want to speak for anybody who's who's in the design business right now. I could see how it could be a challenge because for a, a younger generation, people in their 20s and, and maybe even in their 30s, that phone is a way to communicate. That phone is the source of, of so many ideas and, and so much inspiration. And photographs, I think, do have a huge power. They had a, they had a, a big effect in a real way you know, in the 70s and 80s on a magazine cover, you see a shot of a Tom Fazio hole or a Jack Nicholas hole and developers around the country thought I, we, we got to have, or a Pete Dye hole, you know, we got to have sleeper ties on our golf course. We need a fountain. We got to have an island. We got to have an island green. So, so is it going to be different now? Now we can argue that what's on the phone now is of a higher architectural merit than an island green. But it could it could turn into uh, um, I'm going to one up you you know I've got to outdo you I've got to make an impression and get a lot of positive feedback on this. Man, we need to go have a soda pop and and we can carry that conversation on forever because 
I, as a golf course builder at the end of my career, has experienced the, the 80s and 90s and 2000s and, and 2015 and, and on. And I've seen both sides of it. And I like it all, but my heart goes back to Lynxland. You really can't take a good golf course photo of a Lynxland golf course. St. Andrews really doesn't take a good photo from the ground, but yet is very intricate. And when you look at the road hole, yes, the road hole bunker is very dynamic. And, and it looks good on the phone. We all take those photos. I still take them today. Wow, that captures my imagination. I'm going to take a photo. But will the next generation of architects, builders, as Pete Dye would say, will they go past the photogenic and will they be willing to do something that is way more interactive than photogenic? And one of the layouts I have raring to go someday soon is a golf course that is very interactive. It will be hard to take a photo of it, although it's very big in scale. It'll be very interactive. I hope I'm getting that point across. Can you describe what you mean by interactive and how that might be something different than a normal golf course that anybody would play? Well... For example, uh, I've always been fascinated with green sites that have a bump or a roll somewhere in and around them. Yeah. And if you were to take a photo of that green site with that little bump in and around, in and or around that golf green, it wouldn't show up as dynamic as a, as a, scrape or tear bunker. And so the bump will be as interactive to the golf experience as any bunker could, but it won't take a good photo. Right. And you'll stand back on the tee on this short par four, and you'll see that there's not a lot of uh, tearing looking bunkers out there but when you walk that individual hole, the bumps and rolls will be very dynamic and, what I say, interactive. You could play a ball off of it. You can be repelled or you can advance based on one little bump just in front of the green or uh, just to the side. That's interactive. I'm not saying six bumps equally spaced around the back of a green. I'm saying one bump that influences the shot into the green. That's not very photogenic. And so I think the golf courses that, if I've been given a chance, will be not so littered with thousands of bunkers, but will be challenging because of the way the role of the land is getting to the fairway and then hitting your second or third shot into the green. Because I'm a believer that the ball is way more entertaining on the ground 
than watching it flying in the air for what seems like endless amounts of time. So you you know so many people in the business. You know basically everybody. I'm I'm pretty sure you're, you're connected in some way. I'm, I, so we went through this era as we've been talking about in the 80s and in the 90s when there was a lot of flamboyance in design and a, a drive by developers and architects to to get noticed and, and perhaps get ratings. And then along comes somebody like Bill Coor, who's almost just cutting in the opposite direction, going understated and, and just not, he wasn't going to play that game. And other people, you know, kind of followed in his footsteps. So he was an outlier in that regard. How many of, we talked about the temptation of the camera and, and playing to the camera. I think I have hope because some certainly will have big ideas and want to express them and go bold and, and bigger and better at every turn. But there's going to have to be some guys who also understand that. And, and many who've gotten training through, through Tom and you and, and Bill and others who understand that subtlety is as much of an art form as expressing your, 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 your big ideas with an excavator. So, I mean, don't you, what do you think in, in your experiences with the people that you know, do you see, uh, the ability of people to resist that temptation? You know, it's, I believe that there is a golf course for everybody out there, whether it's uh, very photogenic and, and beautiful to look at and to play, whether it's fun and interactive, whether it makes a statement about how well it's kept, how beautiful it is. Uh, how every grass is in its perfect location or a golf course that looks ratty and and unkept, but the playing characteristics are so much fun that you would turn around and go back and play again. I think there are golf courses for everybody out there. But in my opinion, I think the subtleties of the ground game, when possible, and when the superintendent believes in what the golf course architect's design should entail, that that will be as fun for a broad spectrum of, of players as, as compared to a very narrow spectrum of players. And I'm trying to, I am trying with, if I get my chance, to appeal to a much broader uh, spectrum of players so that my wife can hit the ball on the ground and, and watch the ball feed into a pin location and not have to worry about carrying it so high in the air that it's touching the clouds. And, and that's the style of architecture that a golf course design building that I like. There are others who pr provide something different. So what will be the next generation of, of style of architecture? You know, is it is it the photogenic or is it the interactive? Well, mine will be interactive, and and maybe there'll be a nice split of interactive and and uh, very uh, beautiful to look at, as Mackenzie said, and there'll be a nice mix. I just don't know what owner or developer is ready to go back down that that line. Uh, you know, Mike Kaiser believes in that. Dick Youngscap believed in it years ago. There are other owners out there, but how many of them want that special piece of land and give it to that special architect? 
you'd think that there would be more, and may, perhaps there are, given the wild success of, of Bandon and, and Sand Valley and Strings, Stream Song. And, and I'm presuming wild success. I don't have access to their, their books, but, you know, judging by the how busy they are and the critical feedback and, and the desirability, um, you'd think that that model would, would continue to perpetuate. I would like to see it per- perpetuated, and I'm not alone in this. I would like to see it perpetuated not in a remote site. You know, let's like a version of that is at Common Ground, which which you were involved in building. Now it's not quite as spectacular, but it embodies a lot of those those elements that that you were speaking of. The ability to play the ball in different ways. It's it is an interactive golf course, and it's right in the you know basically in the middle of Denver, and it's accessible, and everybody can play it. So I'm a little I'm a little surprised that we don't see more movement in that direction of bringing that style of golf to maybe not a majestic property but a property that can handle it and also give it put it right in front of people's faces where they can get in their car and drive to it and get home for dinner common ground is is a very good observation about why you couldn't do more of those in the middle of of denver or chicago or uh miami or you name the city right the reason I don't think there are more common grounds golf courses out there is because it was a special piece of property built for a the Colorado Golf Association who wanted to bring golf, you know, to the public. And it's hard to convince a developer in Chicago to give me or give another uh, architect builder a chance to do something that's very understated but would be enjoyed by the masses. What do most developers want to do? Most owners want to do? They want to knock something down and build something even grander and more bold, even more fantastic, even you know off the charts good so people will come. But with that comes the cost to create and the cost to play. And I think that Common Ground checked off most of those boxes when it built a golf course in the city of Denver, city of Denver and Aurora. It built a very, what I believe to be a pretty creative golf course for relatively cheap. It didn't have all the bells and whistles, didn't have a monstrous clubhouse or fountains and waterfalls and uh, 110 bunkers to look at, but it did have some pretty good, strong golf architecture. Eric Iverson, who was in charge of the lead at, at Common Ground, I mean, he he was he pulled it off. I mean, with the help of talented shapers, Kai Goldby, Jonathan Reister, they pulled off some good-looking stuff there. But it doesn't have the fountains and waterfalls. It doesn't have the... 15,000 square foot clubhouse. But what it does have is relatively affordable golf for the masses. That's hard to do in a city where the price of land is astronomical and then the cost to do business in the city is astronomical. So what ends up being the final tally? That the cost to, to play the golf course becomes you know, somewhat difficult. And so you have to find the right owner developer. And it just happened to work for us for the Colorado Golf Association. 
I wish we can build more common grounds. I would love to do it. And I think they're capable of doing it. You just have to find the right owner. I, again, I don't have access to their to their ledger, but from what I understand, they do a lot of rounds at Common Ground, and it's a pretty popular place. And I, I imagine they probably make money on that rather than lose money. I, so I think that that would be a, a pretty valuable asset to be able to present to a potential owner in this day and age. Here's a here's a scenario. Here's a situation. A set a set of dynamics that we can execute it, and at the end of the day. You, you're going to make money on it. I think that would, I'd like to think that still has a, a lot of resonance. Um, but maybe we just don't have enough examples right now of common ground type places that will inspire more people to kind of take that chance and, and invest the way we need them to invest if we're going to get products like that. It's just really the cost of the land and the, and the price to do business. You know, dealing with municipalities and dealing with the cost of the land in an inner city development location. I mean, we're lucky that they haven't tore up every golf course and built condominiums on every one of them because that is the, the best use of the value of the land. But thank God there's people who want open space. So I could go and pitch the common ground theme to every major city in the country and say, let's bring this back. Let's... Let's let's incorporate this style of architecture, simplicity, uh, at a reasonable cost. But it's just hard to gather that audience because land is so expensive and doing business in cities is so expensive that it's hard to find that perfect dynamic. Well, we'll we'll keep trying, won't we? Until please until do. we punch it through. Please do. I want to go please back to do. one more one more thought on 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 photography and social media and the availability of of imagery and how it's it's viral. The other reason that I mean, I can we talked about how that potentially could affect the way people design golf courses. The other, I, I wonder if if you share my chagrin, and I'm guilty of this, but. The one thing that it also does, and drone photography does this as much as anything, but also just, you know, Instagram, is that it demyst to me it demystifies the experience of playing a golf course. It, it once you've seen the golf course and photographs of a hole from every angle and even from the air, it, there's not much there's not much allure left in that. I mean it's like I like I was saying to you yesterday, it's it's almost like pornography, you know, it's just bam. It's like right there in your face. Whereas whereas what we what, what I really respond to is like a, a slow reveal, you know, the strip tease, the, the erotic seduction of it. And you don't get that. And on top of that, it's almost like I feel like we're as viewers, we're gaining access to things that we, we don't have a right to gain a- access to. Um it wasn't even 10 years ago, I guess, obviously before social media, really, or, or the internet, you know, you heard about Fisher's Island or a place like Sleepy Hollow, but you, but you didn't see it. You just knew it was out there. It remained a mystery. It was like, how can they someday go see Fisher's Island? And you have to get on a boat to get there. It's, it's, it's so exclusive. And now you can roll through your Instagram feed and see, it seems like everybody plays it. You know, there's photographs taken of Sleepy Hollow and National Golf Links and every place that used to be a mystery is now just boom right there. And I, I, I just wonder if, if, if that's healthy for golf or it, does that, is it good because it advances our understanding of what great architecture is or 
are there too many drawbacks to make that worthwhile? You know, we, we put our finest art in museums so people can see it. But, th- but those are never, were never maybe intended to be private, where these golf courses were intended to be private, whether that's right or wrong. So I just wonder, what's, what's your take on that? Is it, is it an ultimate, does it help advance our understanding of great architecture, or is the downside too dramatic? Well, I can tell you that I am as much of a believer of the reveal as you. And... I believe that coming over a hillock or rounding the bend of a dune and waiting for the surprise that comes around the corner for your second shot is as fun and interactive as you can get. The reveal. I like that. But people want to know before they go. People want to know about the resort before they go. They go. They want to see a picture of the pool before they play at a resort. They want to see what the food looks like. They want to see how the bed is. And they're just not going to pay that kind of money if the pool is a wash tub and the food is a cheeseburger, and the bed is a cot. You see where I'm going. It's just that presentation of what what are you going to show me and what do I get to see when I make that trip? Now, once they've made the trip, they're all in if they like the golf architecture. But to get to, to get them there, that's the hard part. How do you do that? As we just talked about, photogenic. Come and look at this. Come and experience it. How good would it be if you could find a developer or a golf course owner that would be willing to build a golf course and let no light be shined upon it until you experienced it, teeing it up on the first tee? It's going to be hard to do, but... I think the reveal, as you said, is important. It's just how do I get Derek Duncan to come to my new golf course if I don't show him something? Trust? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I know what you're saying. And I think the other aspect of this conversation is like so many things in our world, once you advance to a certain point, you're not going to go back. I mean, you, you don't retreat from, from technology and what's perceived to be uh, technological advances. And we're, the further we go down this line, the more and more people in this world are, who are going to be running things have come up in this era where they don't know anything different than having full access and full exposure to to everything around the world. There, there will be no more closed doors and, and no more mysteries and no more reveals because I guess people will not want that, as you're saying. And, and I just watched a show this weekend on, on the restoration of artwork. Hmm. Should we... Let the artwork of a Monet fade? Or should technology enhance the color of the Monet and make it even more vibrant for today's viewing pleasure? Boy, talk about a scruples question. Um, oh, man, I sat there and I, after the show was over, 
I said to my wife, I said, that is golf course architecture. Through and through, should we enhance the color and the vibrancy of golden age designs, make them better because we have the technology or should we let them be understated and age to perfection like a bottle of wine? And that goes back to new designs. Should they be vibrant and out there for all to see before they play? Or should they be understated and allow the person to search out? Because I search out Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw golf courses. I just do. Because I know they have a record of enticing and creating cool Design. So I'm going to seek them out. Gil Hands is on that track. People are going to seek out Gil Hands. People seeked out Jack Nicholas and Tom Fazio because they knew what they were going to get. The Dick Wilsons, the Joe Lees, the Robert Trent Jones Jr., Reese Jones. They knew what they were going to get. But that new era coming up, that technology to allow you to preview before you play almost like a video game. You're going to be able to play the video game before you go and experience it. Is that really what we want to do? I'm not sure. I don't know. You don't know. Uh, we were all waiting for you to deliver the, the appropriate answer for us. <laughs> if well, Jim Rubina doesn't know, who does? <laughs> well, I, 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 I debate it all the time, and, and that's what keeps my love of golf so high and the passion so high is because I'm always trying to find that answer, that holy grail, that what would I do? How can I interact? How can I make it better? Should it be better? And that's what keeps my passion going. And I will continue to do that. I don't have the answer. I may have the answer, but I sure as hell ain't going to tell you on this website. <laughs> it's a podcast. Uh, on this podcast on the, so just that that monet uh paradox plays into golf course architecture because you say let's say we have the technology to enhance the, the color of this monet but aren't what you're really doing is trying to determine an original starting point we're returning it digitally hg high definition whatever to what it was originally or what you imagine it to be originally because we don't know we didn't see it when it was painted in, in 1879. So isn't Correct. that the same conundrum you're talking about in golf course restoration? What did it originally look like? How much do you return it to original form? Along the way, as you said, can you make improvements? Are those improvements visible? Are they improvements to adjust the, the golf course to modern play? Or are they invisible things like, like drainage and... Uh, irrigation and bunker liners and things that you can't see, making it modern but still look old. Th those and those are the questions. Those are the questions, and those are the questions that help me drive the new designs. I learned so much from restoring, quotes, restoring McKenzie at Pasa Temple, the Valley Club, uh, restoring... Tillinghast at San Francisco Golf Club, restoring Travis and Devro Emmett at Garden City, 
Rainer at Yeamans Hall in mid-ocean. By learning how they built them, restoring them, recapturing their essence of the design, it has helped me propel the idea of architecture in new designs, whether it's Pacific Dunes, Old MacDonald, Sabonic, Apache Stronghold, on and on and on. Each one of those restorations taught me something. I don't think that we had to enhance the color in the restoration of, of Yeamans Hall. It was all there. So that leads me to the new designs that I'm about to embark on. Understated or enhanced? Vibrant or black and white? Timeless or avant-garde, what the latest trend is. That's the power of technology because it lets us go back and go forward and go back and go forward. And then it's what we make it out of that technology. You're about to find out if I ever get this new design go. <laughs> I think we can maybe read between the lines and figure out which path you're going to take if, if it is indeed a fork in the road of decision making. Well, you must debate it every day that you and interact with golf and people. Do I talk to the 70-year-old that has experienced golf in its, in, in its all its glory? Or do I talk to, what will I learn more from, a 25-year-old who's been around the world on a phone? Right. <laughs> Who has the better well, answer? It's interesting. You know, the, the, I don't know. The guy that's been around the world on his phone, maybe the old guy you know, never left his county. So you'd have to, you have to figure that part out, don't you? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. But I just know that architecture is always evolving. But in the moment, today... I will go seek out another Bill and Ben design. And I'm not so sure that I would fall back and look at another Dick Wilson. Mm. There are good ones, but I don't know if I would fall back to a Dick Wilson. But I would, and I have, seen almost every Seth Rayner and McDonald golf course because I believe that they are timeless. And I'm curious if the era of today will be as timeless. We'll circle back around to that topic at the very end, but be before we shut this down, I have to ask you about Riverdale Dunes, uh, a public golf course kind of in Northeast Denver. Uh, I grew up in Colorado and I played that golf. I've probably played there 10 or 12 times in my life. And it was always our favorite golf course. Now this was before many of the newer courses hit the market before common ground, long before common ground was there, but it long before long before. So this Riverdale was built in, in the mid eighties and it was unlike anything in Colorado. It was a, I guess a Pete and Perry die golf course. I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, we called it a Pete die golf course because it looked like what we saw on TV from what else he built. And it was like Star Wars to go there. It was always just like, you know, he was this diabolical creator and he was just making these like outlandish things on a golf course that you just had to go see it. And it was, uh, and I've been back there recently and I still love it. It's just one of the, one of the best places. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your experience there. Is that where you met Tom Doak? 
No, I actually met Tom at uh, TPC at Plum Creek. Okay. Yes. Yes. So that which which predated that by a few years. Yeah, actually a year. Um, so I was finishing up TPC at Plum Creek, and I had told the Dye family that I was going to go teach, and they thought that was just the dumbest thing you could ever do. They wanted me to keep building golf courses for them, and they asked if I would come and build. Riverdale Dunes in between my teaching stints, summer and winter. And I said that I would, so I went and started shaping Riverdale Dunes. If you knew the talent level of people that were on that golf course back in 84, you would be astounded. And a lot of people don't know these people, but they went on to be very successful in the golf course construction and design business. Can, can you name a few real Dunes, quick? I can. John Harbottle. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, as my dad would say, God the rest late, his the soul. The late John Harbottle. Yeah, he passed away a few years ago. The late John Harbottle. Uh, Tim Furness. Neil Iverson. Eric Iverson. John Reidinger. Um, Jim Urbina. Uh, Tom Doak. Those are the guys, uh, there are a few others that I'm leaving out. Those were the guys that built, David Postlewaite actually roughed in the golf course. David Postlewaite of TPC Sawgrass fame, who worked for Pete. He roughed in the golf course. He moved the heavy dirt. I mean, you talk about energetic and passionate people working on a golf course. And I remember building some of the golf holes. You remember hole number nine for people who don't aren't familiar with yeah, it? Yeah, it's a sweeping dog leg left into a sort of a punch bowlish green. A punch bowl green that towers above you by twenty and thirty feet, correct? Yep. Big set yeah, nestled in these these big grassy mounds. Yes. And so when the golf pro and the director of golf came out while we were building it. They were built, they were, their offices were at the other Riverdale Knowles golf course. They came out in the golf court and, and kind of drove up by where I was shaping the ninth hole. And they turned around and went back in as fast as they could. <laughs> because they were like, uh oh, how are we going to explain this to the county? <laughs> they were like, holy mackerel, we've never seen anything like this. Yeah. And so, I always tell people that as much as I love Common Ground, I love Riverdale Dunes as much. Is and that's because it was we were allowed to be creative. We had a budget and a timeline, and we were allowed to be creative. And we were doing things that nobody else had done before in the eighties. It was way ahead of its time, as you have experienced. And if you go there today. Uh, the young woman who takes care of it, I can't think of her name right now, superintendent, she does such an awesome job. Anne, I believe her name is. And she does the presentation of the golf course so well that people get to experience it. And at that time, the third hole was 600 yards long, 605, I believe. And nobody built a 605-yard golf hole back in the 80s. Very few people much less a municipality, a public golf course. And so it had all of those fun factors that we and I have talked about over the last hour or so. There was holes patterned after Lahinch. 
There's a fun and wonderful short par four, the 14th. 14th. Yep. There's a cape hole. Still don't know how to play that hole. Still don't know how to play. Your your brain goes right to the green and you plunk it in the water every time. But all you had to really do was hit a seven iron, seven iron. And so the creativity of that golf course, much like common ground, I wish I could take Riverdale Dunes to every city in, in the country like common ground. But it was built at the time when it was time to do something different. And thankfully, the dyes let us do something different. And the talent level that was there that I mentioned was off the charts. And that's why it was so creative. It was the, the passion to build something different. We were all in the same game trying to show what we could do. And it turned out pretty doggone good. It's remarkable how it stands up to time as well. Even in that market, time which is so... It, it's Denver's a really, really good public golf market. The whole front range is really strong. And there's still nothing really like Riverdale Dunes. It's so unique. It has so much character. The shaping, the feature work, the, the green designs. It just is... It's so different, and yet it is timeless. It's really great. It's timeless. And as much as Common Ground gets the love in Denver... Uh, more people will get to experience Riverdale Dunes as, as Denver grows to the north, uh, uh, Metro Denver grows up to the north. I hope that it it's, will, will not succumb to modernization and they'll let it be as it should be. I, I feel thankful that I was able to have a few conversations with Pete Dye. Uh, I've talked to PB Dye. I don't know much about Perry Dye. Real quickly, I wonder if you can, do you have a story about Perry or, or tell, can you share what kind of person he was to work for? Perry, Perry was one of the reasons I got to be so creative. Perry Dye would allow shapers, we were all shapers, design associates, shapers. We were allowed to be as creative as we wanted to be and then he would come and edit it. And you have to know this, that Perry was simply emulating what his dad was doing. His dad's style of architecture wasn't broke, and why would Perry want to change that? PB Dye took it to the next level as far as the dynamic look of it, Loblolly Pines and several of the other golf courses he did. I mean, PB took it to the next level. But Perry was such a nice man to all of us coming up in the business. John Harbottle, not a lot of people know this. Scott Sherman, who works for Davis Love, right. he used to work for Perry Dye. Jim Nagel, who was now a force, Ron uh, force. Um, partner, he was an intern for us. I mean, the list goes on and on of people who came through the Perry Dye design company. Uh, his... Uh, Cousin Cynthia died. Uh, it goes on and on and on. Ron Ferris, who did a lot of golf courses in China. I mean, Perry enabled a lot of us to build and be creative. Now, was it the architecture that everybody loves today? You know, that's up for you to decide. But we were given a chance to build, and we were given a chance to create, and we were given a chance to make mistakes and fail. And learn from those. And Perry always allowed us to do that. Unfortunately, he doesn't get the fame that his father gets because it would be hard to follow, follow in your father's footsteps. But Pete, uh, Pete and Perry have done a pretty good job. 
Perry's still busy doing work in Central America, and I talk to him every once in a while. But thankfully, Perry gave me an opportunity to fail and, and, and make mistakes and learn from them. And, and he just doesn't give as much. He, doesn't get, he just doesn't get the love that Pete will always get. And, you know, PB and Perry, they, they're always going to be the sons of Pete. Uh, I wonder how much that, I wonder how that must feel. Like uh, the offspring of any famous people, I'm sure it's not, it's not easy and you probably feel like you're limited in what you can achieve unless you completely break out in a different direction, especially if you're in the family business. But it, it, If you're in the family business and, you know, Reese and Bobby Jr., yeah. you know, what, what they had to go through uh, working underneath their father, that must have been tough. You know, there are some new uh, up-and-coming architects that working underneath their father. I believe a, a, a young Fazio is coming up underneath Tom There's a couple of them, Fazio. or a nephew as well. Nephew. And, you know, I have, I have not met them. I know of their work. I wonder what that's like. But to go back to Perry Dye, he gave us a chance. He gave me a chance to travel. He sent me to golf courses. Pete Dye sent me to golf courses. They paid for me to go to Pinehurst and PGA West and Pebble Beach and all of these golf courses I got to see because Pete and or Perry would pay for me to go and see them. And what else could you ever ask of your boss, your mentor, and uh, of, of them to pass on what they've learned and allow you to learn uh, at your own pace and play? Uh, yeah, I don't think that PB or Perry get enough credit. They certainly don't get enough credit for their role in helping to develop and facilitate the careers of of the people that that work for them. People like yourself and uh, Tom and Bobby Weed and and those guys just kind of being there. Even if it's really came from Pete, they were the uh, often a link in that chain of succession. Well, when I wasn't working for Pete at, at uh, Plum Creek or or Arizona State University or Stonebridge in Dallas, Texas. I was working for his son, Perry, and, you know, Perry was writing a check for me to be out and about, and, you know, I got a chance to work with Rod Whitman at Stonebridge in Plano, Texas, under the Pete Dye banner, right. but when I came back from Stonebridge in, in Plano, Texas, I went back to a Perry Dye project, and so you're right. Nobody gives Perry and PB the credit that they're due because while Pete was off doing really cool stuff and Alice Dye was off doing really cool stuff, Perry and PB were always there to support their mother and father with whatever they needed. That's great. That's great. A couple quick questions to, to close this out. I was going to ask you a question. You already answered it, though. I was going to try to get you to say what, what one course impresses you most from that 1950s to 1980s period, but neither one of us could come up with anything that we, th we thought was, and I was, it couldn't have been a Pete Dye course, so that really would take the legs out from you. So If we went to the 70s, I would say TPC at Sawgrass, or early 70s, I would go the golf club of New Albany. But I said you couldn't say Pete, a Pete Dye course, so that was really good. <laughs> I just pretended like you didn't That's say right. that. That's right. Okay, well, we got those on the record anyway. What's the best What's the best piece of land you've ever seen that doesn't have a golf course on it that, you know, in a, in a parallel world, if you could build one on it, you'd, I mean, you'd do anything to do it. So where is this amazing piece of ground? There is amazing pieces of land in Nebraska, still yet to be used, 
There's amazing pieces of land in Michigan, sand still yet to be used. There's amazing pieces of land in West Texas on sand that's yet to be used. I can't tell you this one location where I've, I'm working right now because I don't want to jinx it, but it's unbelievable piece of sand. There is, pro- oh, the Inch Peninsula in Ireland. Mm. Unbelievable piece of land. I don't know that it'll ever be allowed to build a golf course on it. So they're out there willing and waiting for someone to paint that Monet on them. But it's just finding the right owner and the right style of, of, of architecture that could be put on it. There, there's tons. I, I can't tell you how many pieces of property I've looked at. And I just, I'm salivating at the chance when it gets my chance. I hope I can outlast that, that era. Sand Valley has unbelievable pieces of land left over to be used still. I'm looking at land with Mike Kaiser. Unbelievable piece of properties. Just waiting for the right time. So they're out there. They're everywhere. You just have to find the right owner and the right mission statement to bring them to fruition. This is a great example of, of how times change and things moves. And no matter where you think you are, it's going to change again. Because it wasn't that long ago that the common conversation was, all the good land has been used up. Do you? I'm sure you remember people saying that, that all the good land, you know, think about classic courses and why great architecture wasn't being developed anymore. Was, that was one of the things that people said. Now we know that to not be true at all. We were very wrong about that. You are right. And I said that dumb statement after I was done building Pacific Dunes. I said, it can't get any better than this. <laughs> it just can't. And... I didn't want Pacific Dunes to end. I told Mike Kaiser when we were walking down the 15th hole of Pacific Dunes, that was one of the last holes we seated. I said, can we start over? (laughs) And he laughed. He laughed. And he said, we'll start over if you fund it. (laughs) Right on, yeah. (laughs) And I just knew that that land... Those moons in alignment that I always talk about, everything was right, wasn't going to come again. But lo and behold, there are other pieces of land almost as good as Pacific Dunes. It's what the next generation of architects will do with them. Well, you got to work just on a neighboring property to Pacific Dunes, no less. You didn't have to travel far to get another great piece of land. Shocked. When Mike Kaiser called us back and said, I'd like you to consider doing uh, uh, an idea of, of the Lido based on McDonald and Rainer's interpretation, we didn't actually do the Lido, but we did the ideal holes as interpreted by us. How did I get, how did I even get so lucky to come back 10 years later and build another piece, of, another golf course or a special piece of property? I am so lucky. Bill Coors said to me, we were walking around uh, Old Mac. He says, how come you keep getting these pieces of property, Jim? <laughs> and he was laughing as he said it. And I, I know he meant it with all no, good for him, for sure. All good fun. Yeah. For sure. But and, and then I go to Sabonic 
and work on a piece of sand like Sabonic next to my favorite golf course, the National Golf Links of America. I've been so lucky, Derek. I can't even tell you how lucky I've been. I hope that luck continues on. As it, as it, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. If you've been, you've been kissed by the architectural gods. So let's keep it going. And as we know, there, there are great sites that will be developed. Oh, you don't, you don't even know the sites out there. Wow. I hope to see some of them alongside you. Okay, this is the last one. We've we've been sniffing around this uh, for the whole time. Everybody wants to know what's what's the best modern golf course you've ever seen that you had no part in developing or building or creating. It's a split. It's a split. Okay. That's within the rules. Thank you. Has anybody ever given you two? Yes, many many times. Sometimes more than two. But I I, I take it all in. I'll take it. This is a 50-50 split. I think the Sandhills changed this era of architecture. So Sandhills is the best that has been built in this era, in my opinion. But, same breath, Friar's Head is also without question, one of the most creative pieces of architecture that I've ever seen. I don't know if somebody said, what would you rather play more of, Sandhills or Friar's Head? I could, I, I'd say it's 50-50. The work they did at Friar's Head is off the charts good. And Sandhills and Dick Young's cap vision back in the middle 90s, was groundbreaking, earthquake. Yes. And I love them both. If there is a God in heaven and you're at the, standing at the pearly gates, that would be a pretty nice thing to hear. Up in heaven, which, which do you want to play? <laughs> Friars Head or Sandhills for the rest of eternity? You've, ma- you've made it I to heaven, if, if that were the question. If I made it to heaven and that was my choice, it would be a tough choice. I love them both. I think they were they are good for architecture. Anybody studying golf architecture up and coming would make a pilgrimage to St. Andrews and they would go to the National Golf Links of America and they would go to Cypress Point and they would go to Prairie Dunes and they would go to Pinehurst Number 2 and they would go to Shinnecock and then they'd go to Friars Head and Sandhills. That's pretty lofty company. I just, that's what I would do with my life. All right. Let's, let's design a, a tour service where we can, we can make this happen for anybody <laughs> who wants to go there. <laughs> well, Jim, I had a feeling this was going to go a little longer than we, we predicted, but uh, it was worth every minute Sorry. of it. That was so fun. I really appreciate you joining me and doing the podcast, and I just I loved every minute of it. You know, Derek, we can do this every night if you'd like. But only at night because I'd be working during the day. Oh, I, don't don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. I'll I'll, I'll pour a glass of bourbon and, and we'll just go. We'll do it again sometime in person. Thank you. Thank you. We look forward to it. Thanks, Jim. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. Look, I don't think there's any greater advocate for quality architecture and the, the kind of sympathetic golf design that kind of bonds 
with and enhances the character of the environment than Jim Herbina. He's so passionate. <laughs> Can you imagine getting him and Brian Silva in a room together to talk about golf architecture and classical era courses? <laughs> Their love and devotion and intense belief in architecture is art. I mean, that would melt the walls. Um, I'd love to be a part of that someday. I also appreciate that while Jim has strong beliefs about architecture, he's not harsh or judgmental toward, I guess, styles or periods in design that don't live up to his own personal tastes. Um, you, you know, there are complex and even convoluted reasons why things turn out the way they do, and it's it's easy to just summarily dismiss something you don't like, and it's a lot harder to try to peel it back and, and figure out what the greater motivations were behind uh, a golf course, for instance. And he's willing to do that. He understands that things are complicated and um, he just says there's a golf course out there and a golf course style for everybody. So I, I really appreciate that. Uh, but circling back to this discussion of mid-century golf design and the concept of creativity, I think an important distinction to be made in understanding what was happening is the differentiation between creativity and construction, as we talked about in the podcast, and creativity of design. Most of the post-war progress in golf architecture was really centered around how and where golf courses could and, and were being built. Developers, architects, and contractors of that period were all figuring out all kinds of innovative and efficient ways to build golf courses and how to convert difficult properties into courses. However, the architecture that was often laid on top of these transformed sites, and I'm really talking about the upper 10 or 20% of courses that were built probably because thousands of more just basic and more unassuming and, and functional designs were also being built all over the country between 1950 and 1980 or so. Uh, but th that that architecture was usually stripped down to its basics and increasingly began to follow kind of formulaic patterns so you know the emphasis was on oh, how can we how can we find ways to to make this more economical and efficient and how can we build this using new technology and and that there are so many possibilities in the construction side of it that the design aspect kind of got lost in that whole process so the creativity of design aspect of it kind of faded during this period, as did sort of the intellectualism and the mental engagement side of it that drove the thoughts of the major pre-depression architects. And it really has, looking back, become kind of an artists versus engineers dynamic, even though the mid-century architects very much viewed themselves as artists as well. You know, linking this to something something larger and trying to find reason behind it, it that mindset follows closely to the major societal temperament of the day, specifically the proliferation of the organization man viewpoint. I put that in quotes, organization man, now, which was a strong belief in the power of institutions and organizations and, and government that took root after World War II and flowed through all aspects of business and culture. I mean, this was, this was a belief in big ideas. Big ideas were valued along with the faith in structure, uh, feats of engineering, development, innovation. Um, I mean, think of it as NASA, it's the interstate highway system, IBM, General Motors, and the architecture that was produced during that time reflects that. I mean, you can kind of, you can almost sort of close your eyes and see similarities between the the faith in organization and structures and how these golf courses were being built and perceived. Uh, we've kind of drifted away from that over the decades, from our faith in big institutions and away from the organization man point of view and into more kind of, I guess, community-based belief systems and cultural outlooks that are more transactional in nature. And I think the golf architecture we have uh, over the last couple decades as we've moved into this different era, this different cultural era has kind of mirrored 
mirrored that as designers are have been more willing to break from convention and better tailor golf holes to individual sites. Uh, golf courses are now more bespoke. They're more personal. And architects of the current era are, are much more willing to search for independent ideas, even though if even though those ideas are basically just pulled from the past, but they seem fresh anyway. So that discussion uh, continues. <laughs> um, the no longer in existence Lido course on Long Island uh, came up a few times in the conversation with Jim. If you want to hear more from Jim about that, he did a wonderful piece for the Golf Channel uh, last summer w- along with Connor Lewis from the Talking Golf History Podcast. Those two also got together to talk about it along with my good, good podcast co-host Rod Morey uh, on episode 10 of Connor's podcast, um, and both of those shows are linked in the show notes, so you definitely want to give those a whirl. All right, that's enough of me. Let's get out of here. Uh, subscribe to this show on iTunes, and, and make sure you stay up to date on all the podcasts that are coming at you fast and furious on the Talking Golf Network. That's TalkingGolf.com, 1G. A new podcast debuted this week called On the Tee with Dr. P, featuring Dr. Kelly Price. Uh, it's a podcast in which she explores and explains different issues involving women's golf, human ecology, yes, human ecology, and other high-minded and instructive but entertaining topics. So you'll want to give that podcast a listen. Give me a follow on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. Please share this episode and others with friends. And also dive into the back catalog of shows if you haven't done that in a while. There's a lot of gold in those past episodes. Thanks to Jim Urbina for sharing his time. Thank you for listening, as always. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios. Adios.